if you know me much at all, you know that it will just about break me not to use a Revolutionary War uh, scenario to illustrate our point this morning, um, but I'm going to do my best. Because as much as I want to connect this with Independence Day and I want to uh, engage in that historical adventure and to be able to make this point clear in a way that we can understand what I don't want to do today is to distract in any way from the gravity of what is taking place in Luke chapter 5 and I don't want to take away in any way from the gravity of what it means to truly know Christ so today we'll be um, we'll be starting Luke chapter 5 will be in the beginning uh, section of that, so I invite you to get your Bibles out. If you don't have a Bible with you or you don't have a Bible of your own that is easy for you to read and use, then uh, just raise your hand and Mr. Todd will take care of you. We've got uh, Bibles available. We're going to need some in the back here. It's, it's one thing to go to church, to listen to a podcast, to, you know, to sit under a teacher and to hear uh, what a human preacher or teacher has to say, it is quite another indeed to encounter the living God through His Word. There's a reason we're a Bible teaching church. There's a reason we want to be grounded in the text of the Scripture. Because human opinion is flawed. But the Word of God is not. It is inerrant. It is infallible. It is sufficient and authoritative. Everything that we need to know in life and faith and practice, we find in the scriptures. Today, uh, we're continuing our journey through the book of Luke in our Dear Theophilus series. And the idea behind the entire thing, what Luke is accomplishing, he makes it easy for us. He tells us in chapter 1, verse 4, I'm writing this so that you may know the certainty of the faith that you've been taught. Luke wants Theophilus, which I think not so coincidentally happens to mean God lover, and us, lovers of God, to have a confident faith knowing that what we have been taught is right and true and accurate and worth believing. So he's establishing these things here in Luke. We've seen him uh, identify John the Baptist and Jesus, the forerunner to the forerunner in John, to uh, bring forth and prepare the way for the Messiah. We've seen him clearly identify Jesus as both fully human and fully God. We've seen him establish that there is more to it than just admiring Jesus as a fan. That we need to receive him as Lord, as King of everything. We saw that contrast last week in chapter 4 between Nazareth, his hometown, where they were excited about his fame, they wanted to, to ride his comet, so to speak, and as he required more from them, they rejected him. He went to Capernaum, and they admired not only his talent and his fame and his gracious words, but the message and the authority that came with it. And as Jesus demonstrated that same authority through miracles, through the deliverance uh, of people out of darkness, out of the uh, oppression of demons, 
and healed them of the, of the sickness and diseases that they had, Jesus demonstrated in this that he was who he said he was. That the authority of the message was not just in the words, yes, in the words, but in the living word himself, as John would identify him later. Now, we see this played out in a different way in the beginning of Luke chapter 5. Up until now, Jesus has been teaching in the synagogue. Now we change settings. Join with me, if you would, in Luke chapter 5. We'll read this. You can follow along with me. We'll start with verse 1 and read through the first 11 verses. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I'll let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for the authority that Jesus demonstrates in his walk here on earth. That same authority that has spoken the cosmos into existence and will one day end death and slay the serpent. Father, that same authority is what allows <laughs> is what allows us to be alive and free in Christ. Because you have chosen to be just and yet also the justifier. Father, in your righteous judgment, make us clean in the name of your Son. And today, as we gather as your people in your house to worship, Father, strip away from us anything that might get in the way. We know the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. And the enemy would love nothing more this morning than to divide, distract, or discourage us to deceive us with words that sound like wisdom but are not from you. We pray in the name of Jesus and by his delegated authority 
that you would silence every deceiving voice, anything that would lift itself up against and above the knowledge of you. Father, remove from us the enemy's force today. Father, lift also our burdens from the world around us and the difficulties that we face and the relationships that strain us. Remove from us, for this moment, the urges of the flesh, the simple things that might distract us, like being tired on a Sunday morning or hungry. All of the things that can play into our minds and keep us from receiving what you have for us. Father, protect us from this. Discipline us. That we might see Jesus as he is and receive your word into our hearts. We pray this in his precious name. Amen. So as we look at this text, uh, it is itself a good illustration, so I don't really need to come up with something uh, nifty and clever and contemporary. I like to say nifty when I can, and hopefully some of you can appreciate that. I'm not that clever, and uh, the older I get, the less contemporary I feel. But the Word of God is unchanging. As we look through this text, there's a pretty clear theme that jumps out, and it's the way that this fits into Luke's overall narrative. There is a story arc in this book, as there is in all the books of the Bible. God is telling one story from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, from creation until the last day for all of us, and we're in that story. We're living in it, and he's revealed the plot to us in this book. And within this book, we have 66 individual books. Okay, 62, I guess, if you consider the Samuels and Kings as combined. But, but anyway, before I have too much fun with breaking down the Bible there, all of these individual books have an intent from the author, something that they were saying to their audience, something that they wanted to convey. Because the Spirit of God, speaking to and through them, moved them to convey this. So the text of the Scripture is important. The context of the Scripture is important. And as with all literature, the genre, the uh, authorial intent, what the author intended to say to those who received it, matters. Once we get that, then we can begin to apply it to ourselves. But if we jump to this application for ourselves, then we tend to become those who shape God in our image. Whatever the hot topic is of the day, whatever issues on our mind, we read that into the scripture rather than reading the scripture as it is and inserting ourselves there. To begin to apply it to ourselves, we have to start with the truth. So the truth is, Luke is writing a story to tell you and to tell me something. Actually, I just contradicted myself. To tell the readers at that time, Theophilus and the early church, so that it could be passed on to us. Something about the life and ministry of Jesus Christ and how that gospel affects those who follow Bear in mind, Luke was not with Jesus at the time. He wasn't one of these early apostles. He was a friend of Paul's, a a companion of Paul's. He was a doctor, and he was going back to research all this stuff for himself, for his own faith. And now he's passing that on, having 
investigated it at all, investigated it all from the beginning. Too many T's and D's in there. He is able to confirm and affirm the truth that had been passed on by the apostles. So now as the church is expanding, you're getting to a place where there are fewer and fewer apostles that will be left. And we'll have to have an authoritative understanding of what they taught. Luke is doing that here. As we read these first 11 verses of chapter 5, there is a core reality that draws this all together. This is Luke's point, modified, if you will, from my wording, but it is what Luke is trying to get us to see as he transitions from the introduction of Messiah to the introduction of the ministry of Messiah. It's simply this, knowing Jesus as my everything means letting go of everything else. Let that sink in for just a moment. Knowing Jesus as my everything means letting go of everything else. We need to get this, so say it with me as we go through it. Knowing Jesus as my everything means letting go of everything else. As we work through this, we're going to see that because Jesus is the king of everything, as we saw last week, and Peter will experience in a new way today. Knowing him personally requires more than fandom. It requires more than an admiration or a shallow worship. When we get together and we enjoy the music and we feel moved emotionally and, and we get caught up in this moment, it requires more than that. It requires more than a Sunday morning. It requires my whole life. As we look through this, we're going to see some things that uh, stand out. And hopefully as you uh, jot some notes down and I would put the blanks there for you to fill in so you can be able to follow along, you'll be able to follow what Luke is saying. He starts with just setting the scene. First couple of verses, that's what he's doing. He's, he's, he's giving us a context. He's putting us in the story so that we can see it. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, which is another name for the lake of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias, so, uh, Sea of Galilee, Lake Galilee, Lake Gennesaret, however you find it, those three terms are interchangeable for the, the uh, place that we're familiar with. The people are crowding around him, right? So, there, he's standing there, and he's reading. It appears that he's actually reading the Word of God to them. That would be the norm, to stand out of reverence, to read the Word of God. And at that time, a rabbi would sit, generally, to teach. So, as they're crowding around him, we can... Assume, looking at this, that he is reading or, or reciting the Word of God. And he sees, as they're pressing in on him, that at the water's edge there are two boats. The fishermen who own these boats are washing their nets. That's what they would do, having already fished. They would prepare the nets for the next day. That way they don't uh, rot or break. And so they would wash them out and they would spread them to dry. And these fishermen, while they're doing that... This is a morning time. They've been out fishing all night. That was how it was normally done. Everybody knew that's how you fished in, in Lake Gennesaret. You would fish at night in the shallow water with these nets, and that's where you'd catch the fish. If, uh, if a carpenter comes up and tells you to do something else, that seems a little bit odd. What does a carpenter know about fishing? But I digress. He sees at the water's edge these two boats, and he gets into one of the boats. Remember, the crowd's pressing in around him. The one that he gets into belongs to Simon. 
and he begins to teach from there. So he, he has them put it out a little bit from the shore, not too far, but just far enough to keep the crowds at bay. It gives him a platform, a pulpit, so to speak, to be able to do it. Man, I would love to just break down this boat piece because it's pretty cool. But, but just looking at the reality here, Jesus chooses the boat that belongs to Simon. It's clear as we read this, he already knows Simon. He knows these guys. They've been following him. They're actually from Capernaum. Jesus is from Nazareth. So as he's been teaching here in Capernaum and around the area, they hear, they know, they follow. Last, time, or, um, yeah, last chapter we looked at Jesus going into Simon's home and actually healing his mother-in-law. So they've had this encounter. As we look at Matthew and Mark, it appears that, uh, that Jesus has already, it appears, called these men to follow them. The, these uh, disciples, Simon, his brother Andrew is not mentioned here, but is included in the group, James and John, and then the other fishermen who are there but are not among the apostles, so they're not named. He's already called these folks to follow him as we look at the other Gospels. Now we're picking up and he's repeating something that he's already said to them. He gets in Simon's boat. He chose Simon for a reason. He needed Simon, Peter, to be the leader that God created him to be. When Peter gets it, he's going to get fired up. And then everybody's going to have an impact. We know from reading the Gospels that Peter was basically the leader unofficially, I would say. Some in church history would say the official spokesperson. Uh, but at least unofficially, Peter is the spokesperson for the apostles. He's the leader. He's the big guy. Physically, history tells us he was the big fisherman. That was how he was known. So the big fisherman had a physical presence that caused people to want to follow him. He had a personality uh, that was kind of the type A sort, and people wanted to follow him. So Jesus gets Simon on board with him through what happens in these 11 verses. But as he sets the scene out for us, he's, Jesus is now sitting in the boat. He's shared the word of God. Now he's expositing, expounding, building on, and applying the word of God. He's sitting in the boat teaching. So at this point then, the master, this is the, the point we want to see in this next section here. And you can mark this on your, on your program. The master often requires things that don't make sense to us. The master often requires things that don't make sense to us. Faith obeys anyway. The master often requires things that don't make sense to us. Faith obeys anyway. Notice in verse 4, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water. And let the nets down for a catch. Now, as I mentioned before, that's not how it was done. Peter wasn't just a casual fisherman, right? Some of you are, are casual fishermen. Peter is the guy that would have a, a TV show on, on True TV or, or some channel that shows reality shows where you're out there on the fishing boat with him. That's what he does for a living. If he doesn't catch fish, he doesn't eat. He doesn't pay his bills. His cable gets shut off. They didn't have cable. I made that up. But the reality is if Peter doesn't know what he's doing, he's a failure. He clearly knows how to fish. 
Now this carpenter is going to come and say, hey, I want you to do exactly the opposite of everything you have ever known before. What would you do? Are you going to take the carpenter seriously? Well, you are if you recognize that this carpenter has proven himself to be an authoritative teacher. You've just witnessed him speak to your mother's fever, this life-threatening fever, and it disappears without residual effect. Probably going to catch your attention. You've witnessed him speak to demons, and the demons obey in fear and trembling. That guy, I might listen to. So Peter obviously recognizes this, and we can tell just simply from the words that he uses, Simon answered, Master. Master. That's an indication for us that he's already following Jesus. He has an understanding that this is more than just uh, the next cool thing. There is something unique. He may even believe that he's the Messiah. He may be getting that. I think it really hits him by the end of the story. But it's important for us to recognize, sometimes the Lord asks us to do stuff that just doesn't make sense. Sometimes He asks us to be generous when generosity just doesn't seem possible. Sometimes He asks us to forgive people when that just does not seem logical. Sometimes He asks us to give up what we are used to, perhaps our career, to pursue Him. There are a lot of things the Lord may require of us that don't make sense. I say sometimes, that's the norm, not the exception. The Master often requires things that don't make sense to us. Faith obeys anyway. We see this in Peter. Faith, and we've discussed uh, many times, that faith isn't perhaps the mystical kind of fancy idea we turn it into. We make it super religious. Most things that we make super religious are a distortion of reality. We've created something that is not what God has told us in Scripture or how God has intended it. But as we see here faith, we're talking about trust. Believing the truth, aligning my thoughts with reality. Peter, recognizing Jesus as the master, or at least as a master, as a rabbi, somebody that I should obey and follow, he has to make a choice. What's more important to me? To trust the master and do what he says? Or to do what I think is right? Faith obeys even when it doesn't make sense. We see a second thing here, and this is so important for us. If you've ever tried to, to start an old pump, anybody ever tried to do an old you know, water pump? Very often you need to prime that pump. You've got to pour water into that pump to be able to prime it. If you've tried to start a, a, you know, a, a power tool at your house, a, a lawnmower or a, a gas blower or something, there's a little primer button on there, isn't there? You choke it, you prime it, you pump that fuel into there. We need to recognize that if we're going to see God move in our lives, we need to prime the pump. Obedience is prerequisite to blessing. Obedience is prerequisite to blessing. So often we, we say, man, if I could just see God move, then I would know and I would be able to trust Him and I would be able to obey. And God says, 
That's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. If you want God's blessing, you prime the pump by obeying him. Well, I don't know if I can afford to, you know, to give to this missionary. When you feel God nudging you to do this, test him by doing it. Test and approve what God's good, pleasing, and perfect will is. This is Romans 12, 2. When you renew your mind with his word and you let him transform you from the inside out and you make yourself a living sacrifice, that means I die to myself. I give up myself. I lay myself on his altar. Lord, I'm not calling the shots anymore. You are. And I obey before I see. I walk by faith, not by sight. That's when I begin to see. That's how I test and approve God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. Obedience is prerequisite to blessing. Notice in verse 5, Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. Their own efforts availed nothing. They did what they were supposed to do. They did it right. They knew what they were doing. They worked really hard, and they had nothing. We do that in our own efforts a lot of times too, don't we? Lord, I'm living right, but I'm still failing. I've done everything I can do in this relationship, and it's still failing. I've worked really, really hard to try to be responsible, and it's not working out. I can't seem to get over. Our own efforts often avail nothing, just as theirs did. Notice Jesus doesn't condemn them for what they did. They are actually doing the right things. But the right things in our own efforts are a lot different than doing weird things with the power of the living God behind us. Master, we've worked hard all night. We haven't caught anything. But because you say so, obedience. Because you say so, Master, I will let down the nets. Peter saw Jesus as Master or Lord, and therefore he obeyed him, even though it didn't make sense to him. Peter was living out Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. You know that verse, don't you? We've talked about it. But just in case you don't, let's turn to Proverbs. We'll come back to Luke, but let's turn to the book of Proverbs. Toward the middle of your Bible, you'll probably find Psalms, and just to the right of the Psalms is the Proverbs. You want to see what God says here. One of my absolute favorite passages in Scripture, because it is so central to everything else. If you want to understand faith, if you want to increase your faith, this is how you do it. You make a choice to align your thinking with reality. Solomon the Wise writes this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Say that with me. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding. Now, see, we, we kind of think we're, we're trusting in the Lord with all our heart, but we have failed to give up our own understanding. If I'm still holding on to my understanding, if, if my whole life is trusting in the Lord where it makes sense to me, trusting in the Lord when He asks me to do things that... I understand. Trusting in the Lord, well, except for here. Because, you know, you know, society's evolved. We're much different than what we were back then. That was an ancient culture. God surely didn't mean 
this. You know, all of this commands about purity and how we handle our, our marriage, sexuality, and family, well, that's old stuff. It's changed now. So, yeah, I trust in the Lord, but that part we'll just throw away because it doesn't make sense. Right? Well, what about that turn-the-other-cheek thing? Surely God was just talking, you know, metaphorically, not really. It doesn't really apply to us today. What about giving everything away and the widow's might and giving her last bit? You know, I trust God, but if I do that, I don't know how I'm going to pay my bills. So clearly God must not mean that. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him. Or if you have a, a newer rendition of the NIV, it would say submit to him. In all of your ways, submit to him. Acknowledge him. And he will make your path straight. Peter gets that. Sort of. He understands that what Jesus is asking him to do on a human level is dumb. Jesus is saying, do this thing that is opposite of everything that is inside of you. Everything within Peter had to be screaming. Now, I know from my own sons, because my sons are a reflection of their father. If you're working in your workplace and you're doing something and you are asked or advised especially by a peer, to do something that just seems stupid. It's really, really hard to choke it down and do it. When you're required to do something that you know, you just, you know it's not the right way, and it could just be so much better if I would, if you just listen to me and do it my way. And it's your boss, it's still really hard to choke it down. Peter had to be saying inside of himself, he's battling this. Man, deep water, really? In the daytime? With the sunshine? The sunshine's going to drive these fish down. They're, they're going to run away from our nets. How, this is the dumbest thing. But, but he's Jesus, and, and he's been right in everything else he's been saying. He healed my mother-in-law. Oh, man, what am I doing? The struggle is real for Peter and for us. Obedience is prerequisite to blessing. If we want to see God move, we have to trust God above our own feelings and our own understanding. And when we do that, then he pours out blessing on us. Notice what happens here. Verse 6, when they had done so, holy cow, man, if I, if I were you, I would, I would underline this in my Bible. When they had done so, notice Jesus doesn't move until they obey. There are no fish jumping into the boat. Some of you remember Sesame Street and Ernie, fishy, 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 here, fishy, fishy, fishy. And the fish jump into the boat, right? That doesn't happen here. What happens is they obey. They put the net in the water in the wrong spot at the wrong time, but the Lord of creation, the king of everything, says, fish, get in the boat, get in the net. When they obey. And they get so many fish that they don't even know what to do. The nets are breaking. Now these are, nets are, are clean and washed. They're still wet from before. Haven't rotted because they've been washed. 
So they're still strong. These are strong nets. And they're breaking. It reminds me of Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. That our God is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. You can't even begin to think about what you should pray about to begin to scratch the surface of what God wants to do in the life of His faithful and obedient children. But obedience is a prerequisite to blessing. Turn to Malachi 3.10. When have you turned to Malachi for the express purpose of the fact that I know most of you don't even know where Malachi is. So since we don't know where it is, if you're in Proverbs still, turn to the right. If you're back in Luke, turn to the left. It's toward the end of the Old Testament. And when I say toward the end, I mean it's the end. If you're in Matthew, you're real close. It's the last book before Matthew. In Malachi, there are some pretty <laughs> astonishing things, judgments that God speaks against Israel, as in all the prophets. But there's a really important concept that we see. In chapter 3 of Malachi, God is condemning, judging his, his children, Israel, for robbing him in their tithes and offerings. They are justifying not giving God their best. And as they're doing this, they're like, how are we robbing you, God? He says, did you not see what you put in the plate last week? That's an old reference. We don't pass the plate here, but you get what I'm saying. Did you not, did you not realize that you're giving me less than your best? You're committed to give me 10%? That was the, the law of Israel. But you're not doing that. He also judged them in another passage for giving it, but not having their heart in it. But verse 10 is the key. Verse 10 is what we want to see here and connect with what we're seeing in, uh, what we're seeing in Luke 5. He says in verse 10, Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. Test me in this. Do it and See if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have enough room for it. Obey me, that's the test. And when you obey, see if I don't keep my word. I've promised and I've delivered. Every time since the dawn of creation, you have been able to see that I keep my word. Try it now. Do what I tell you. And when you obey, see if I don't pour out blessing on you that's more than you even know what to do with. Until your storehouses are overflowing. Until, as it were, your nets break and your boats begin to sink. God wants so much to pour out blessing on his children. But obedience is prerequisite to that blessing. Notice also this. Radical humility is the only logical response to an encounter with the living God. Radical humility is the only logical response to an encounter with the living God. Verse 8, when Simon Peter saw this, saw all of the, the fish and the nets and then the boats and all of this, when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. 
This is the only logical response to an encounter with the living God. When the Bible speaks of the fear of the Lord, it's not fear of, you know, God's going to smite me. It's not, not that. It's the fear of the fact that he is holy and I am not. And that he, should he choose to smite me in his righteous wrath, he can. It's to recognize that I don't belong here. I don't belong in front of this God. I am not holy and you are everything and my very presence stains the air around you because sin is who I am. Peter sees what Jesus does. Now, why does this strike Peter? Why does it hit him differently than, than these others? He's already seen the demons being cast out. He's seen him personally directly heal his mother-in-law. Maybe he didn't like his mother-in-law. I don't know. But <laughs> Sorry. Might have been a distraction. I try not to do that. I love my mother-in-law for the record. Something changes when God shows up in our everyday. You see, up until now, Jesus is in the synagogue. He's teaching in the synagogue. And he's doing these other miracles. But now, in this particular instance, today, he shows up where Peter lives and works and feels comfortable, where he knows what to do, where now Peter is in control. And Jesus shows up in this everyday setting and does what is every day for Jesus. It's Jesus every day, colliding with Peter's every day. And all of a sudden now, the fish, is it that big of a deal? Uh, it's kind of a big deal, but it's a big deal to Peter. It might blow us away, but when you see God show up in your life, in your family, it's different than in church. It's different. When, when, when God shows up here in church and we're singing together and we're reading the word together and we feel the presence, right? We, we talk about feeling the presence of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes it's just emotion. But I, I, I know because the word of God promises that when we're gathered, he's here in a special and unique way. But when you see him show up in your home to do things that you didn't think could be done, because you've obeyed him and he's poured out blessing and he's kept his word and it's right in your lap in a way that you couldn't understand if it were in a religious setting. It's astonishing. And it grabs him. And Peter realizes, whoa, there is no part of my life that he doesn't have access to. There, are, there can't be any secrets from this God. He's not in the synagogue. He's here. He's in my boat. And he's doing this. This Jesus who is the king of everything. And he's demonstrated this. He's in my life. He's in my business. Sometimes we don't like it when God gets in our business. You know why? Because just like Peter, we're sinful. And we prefer the darkness to cover up our sin. And the light exposes it. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. It reminds me of Isaiah 6, 5. You know, it's one of my favorite passages. And in Isaiah 6, the prophet has a vision of the Lord high and exalted and seated on a throne in the temple. And the, 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 the train of his robe fills. It's the symbol of his glory and his majesty and his strength and his holiness, his otherness, and it fills the temple. And angels, burning angels, 
are flying around and, and, and all they're doing, they're covering their faces and feet in humility as they are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Isaiah sees this vision and he says, woe to me, I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen God. And God cleanses him. Peter's in the same situation. What have I done, Lord? I don't belong here. You're too holy for me. And Jesus comforts him, doesn't he? What a, what a beautiful moment. Don't be afraid. From now on, you'll fish for people. Radical humility is the only logical response to an encounter with the living God. When they encountered Jesus in their everyday, they saw him for who he really was. The Lord. Once they really realized that he was the king of everything, including everything that they had known and were familiar with, and everything that they could not yet imagine, nothing else mattered but following him. They were astonished by what he did, but it wasn't what he did that they were following. Notice they're not saying, Jesus, that's awesome. Can you keep doing that? Because we can make a killing. If you just keep filling our boats, we will be the most profitable fishing operation in all of Judea and Galilee. We could retire. Lord, come on, do it again. Bring that blessing to me. We have a tendency to do that in our prosperity mentality sometimes. I have a real beef with the prosperity teaching that says God wants me happy and wealthy. That's not what we see in Scripture. God does want you Wealthy with the wealth of heaven. And happy that you have found joy in his presence. But let's leave behind the dumb stuff. These guys are amazed because they realize in this moment who he is. And in realizing who he is, the fish don't even matter. The prophets don't even matter. They leave everything. They leave it behind. I'm not entirely sure they didn't even leave the fish behind, right? Because they leave everything and they follow him. There may be a gap in what Luke is saying. Maybe they process and then they go. Or maybe they just catch and release. Lord, we get it. This is small potatoes. You have our lives. The fear of the future was a small thing when they knew the Lord of the future was with them. These men were done playing with mud pies in a slum. They had finally realized the value and the beauty of an offer of a holiday at the sea. Something bigger came, just as we saw in our core reality. Knowing Jesus as my everything means letting go of everything else. Everything. And this requires faith. The life of a disciple is a life of faith. Join me as we go through this just briefly. We're just going to connect the dots from what we've just seen. We're not going to take a lot of time on it, but man, we've got to get this. Faith is involved in every step of this. And when I say faith, as I said before, we're talking about trusting, aligning my thoughts with reality. When I see God's truth, I embrace God's truth. Now, whether I see it or not, I know what is real and true, and faith is able to rely on that to be certain of that truth, even when I don't see it yet. Hebrews 11.1. 1. The life of a disciple is a life of faith. By faith, we obey the word. 
By faith we obey the word. Peter had to choose to trust the master. Jesus gives him a command. You can be gentle about it, even call it a suggestion. We have a tendency to doubt God's direct commands. We have to choose to say what the master wants is better and bigger and more important than whether or not I get it. By faith, we obey the word. By faith, we see the reality. By faith, we see the reality. He had to choose to accept the reality that he encountered. Now, he'd already seen miracles. That wasn't new. And he knew that Jesus could do a lot of things. And it would have been very easy to, to see these fish and write it off in some way. To have a naturalistic, uh, secularist explanation just happened to be an anomaly and these fish happened to be there. Jesus maybe saw it because he's got better eyesight than I do so he could check this out. Or maybe we know he's connected with the spiritual world. Maybe an angel saw it from up above and told him, I don't know. We explain things, don't we? Peter needed, and so did his compatriots there, they had to exercise faith to trust that what they saw was really what they saw. God does things in our lives often to get our attention, but we're, we are so busy looking for something else that we don't receive it. We don't see the reality. By faith, we see the reality. By faith, we leave the familiar. By faith, we leave the familiar. It's hard to let go of what we know, isn't it? Say amen if it's hard to let go of what you know. It's hard to let go of what we know, but it's even harder when we're doing it to embrace what we can't yet see. It's hard to embrace an unknown future. That's hard. They had to choose to trust that the man that they just saw do this great thing, who is more than a man, who is the Lord, the King of everything, God himself, the, the master and commander of all things in the universe, they had to trust that whatever was coming next was better than anything that they've ever known. By faith, we leave the familiar, and along that same line, by faith, we follow the Christ. By faith, we follow the Christ. We know, as we've talked about before, that Christ is the Greek word, the Greek uh, word that represents the Jewish word, or the Hebrew word Messiah, the anointed one, God's chosen. By faith, we follow the Christ. We choose to trust our unknown future to a known Lord. We choose to trust our unknown future to our known Lord. Doesn't that make it a whole lot easier? Now, don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting it's ever easy to leave everything and follow God. Because I don't know what's coming. That's why we have the fear of death, right? Because we don't know what's on the other side. But when I know he's there, when I know he's in control, boy, it sure makes it easier. We choose by faith to trust our unknown future to our known Lord if we recognize that he's king of everything, it only makes sense. Everything else becomes small by comparison. Why does all this matter? Why is any of this important? Well, it's just what we see in our core reality. Because knowing Jesus as my everything means letting go of everything else. If I really see who he is, if I encounter him the way Peter does in the boat, 
the way Isaiah does in his vision of the temple. It's not that God is demanding our life and our soul. He is. It's that reality itself tells us this. Here is the greatness, the great thing, the eternal, the lasting, the perfect. We're still clinging on to little, small, pathetic, passing things. What part of reality doesn't demand that we let go of the small to grasp the great? By faith, we follow the Christ, knowing that as, as we get to see Him for who He is, and obey the word, leaving the familiar becomes easier. What difference does it make in my daily walk? Now, if you're not saved, if you're not in a relationship with Jesus Christ, you need that encounter. You need to know him as he is. And when you know him, when you see him as he is, then choosing to follow him becomes the only logical response. I'm just leveled in his presence. And I choose him as my everything. If he's my everything, and I embrace him with both arms, I've got nothing left to hold on to weak and pathetic things of this world. When I surrender to him, when I confess with my mouth, Yes, Jesus is Lord, and He's the Lord of everything, but He's my Lord, and I want to be His. And we believe in our hearts that God raised Him from the dead. There is no question in Scripture, Romans 10 says, you will be saved. Not you might, not you could be, not if you're good enough, not if you keep up with it, you will be saved. Then what? If you've been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ and embracing Him, how shall we then live? What familiar things do you need to let go of? There are a lot. Let me give you just a few. How about safety? Comfort? The security of my past? As I look around here, I see some of you who uh, have retired from your careers. And that was a little bit scary, even when you knew that's what you wanted to do. It was the right thing. You were prepared for it. But for your whole life, you've been doing things a certain way. And even just your daily schedule changes. And that's scary and difficult. Many of you have taken the great leap into marriage. Scary. Some of you got scarier afterwards. <coughs> Maybe I need to let go of my safety and comfort and the security of my past. Maybe, maybe like, like these fishermen, I need to let go of my own efforts. I need to stop trying to get it right. I need to stop trying to fix myself. I need to stop trying so hard to focus on the things that I can control. Maybe I need to stop trying to have the perfect family, to have children who always obey, to have things look right to outside. Maybe I need to... Let go of control. For many of us, we need to let go of our own understanding. I need to let go of my need to get it, to see what God is doing. God, just show me. 
I might need to let go of that control, that understanding. Maybe I need to let go of the glory of this world. All of the things that we look at, we think, wow, if I could just have that, that's a great car. That's a great house. That's a cute new top. Whatever it is that we're looking for, maybe we've got to let go of those things. Maybe what you need to let go of today is my sin, my anger, my hurt, my habits. I'm so used to them, even the ones I hate. For many of us, we cling to fears that we want to get rid of. We want to be dead to that, but we still keep holding on to it. And God is trying to free us from it. Jesus paid for it already. And God is saying, let go. I've got you. I've got you. I'm holding on to you. Just let go. And we cling. And we cling. And we cling to our sins and our hurts and our pain and our habits and our thoughts, our strongholds. Maybe you need to release and let go of your worldly reputation, what people think about you. Or relationships that have been a comfort to you and you know that they're not right. You know that they're dragging you down, but it's where you've always been. It's who you've always known. It's my family. Jesus will address that directly later on. I have to let go. Maybe it's your finances, your plans, your home. You see how this pattern runs. If Jesus is my everything, if I see him for who he is, and I'm going to follow him, then I have to let go of everything else. I have to turn and leave it all, drop everything and follow him. But understand, I don't need to fix those things. I don't even need to focus on overcoming those things. I just have to let go of them. He'll take care of the fixing. He'll take care of all of that stuff if I'll simply stop clinging to this world and choose Him as my everything. I pray right now for you, for myself, that right where we are in the midst of our everyday life, that you would be so overwhelmed by the reality of Jesus Christ that you let go of everything else to follow him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, um, I wish that I could better communicate your word, but we trust and rely on the fact that your spirit will illuminate your word. It's not about how eloquently I speak or how well I preach. It's only about the truth that you have and our willingness to surrender to your spirit within us. Father, help each one of us to understand that Jesus is God. That you've set him above all things. He is supreme over all creation. Lord, help us to recognize that there is absolutely nothing in this world, in this life, that is worth comparing to the glorious nature of knowing our dear Savior. Father, in this moment, and as we prepare to take elements today to remind us of his sacrifice,
makes so abundantly clear to us that we have been set free in Christ because he paid the ultimate price for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.